Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is still David Kakish, and I'm still one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church. And I want to start out this sermon with a story. Ten plus years ago, God blessed me with this opportunity to lead a man to Christ. Um, this is a guy I never, never thought would profess faith. He was a rough and tumble drug dealer, and I said, I just, I just never, ever thought he would do it. But hearing him confess his sins and profess faith in Jesus Christ uh, was a reminder then and is still a reminder today that uh, what seems impossible for man is, impo- uh, is possible with God. Anyways, uh, a few months after he made this profession of faith, he asked me for a favor. He asked me if I could drive him to the DMV. He needed to renew his driver's license. I said, sure. We went, took a number, and waited. There are a lot of differences between the South and the Pacific Northwest. The DMV is not one of them, you know. Uh, what's the saying? Uh, God is with you everywhere you go except the DMV. There you're on your own. Um, we got there. We took a number, and when his number was finally called, we went to the window, and he filled out the paperwork. He showed the required documents and signed the stuff, and the lady said, uh, just wait for a little bit. I'm going to get everything printed. And so we said, no problem. We're chatting. We're waiting. Twenty-something minutes later, uh, two state troopers walked in from behind us, grabbed the man I was with, put him on the ground, and put him in cuffs. And as you can imagine, I was a little confused by what was transpiring right there that day in the DMV. And turns out, six months before, he uh, had been arrested for selling drugs to an undercover cop in Colorado. And rather than going to court, he moved back to Alabama, thinking that he'd left his past behind him and was ready to turn a new page. And the officer explained to me that because he skipped state lines and was skipped bail and all the rest, he had committed a felony and he was looking to three to five years in prison. So tough situation. Long story short, uh, I decided to fly across the country and to testify in his trial as a character witness. And when I was given the chance to speak to the judge, I got to tell her about the transformation I had seen in his life, uh, which was a cool thing. I told her that I had a front row seat in his sanctification, the process by which the Holy Spirit was molding and shaping and chiseling away at this man and conforming him into the image of Christ. Uh, He'd been off drugs for months. He was coming to church faithfully. We were reading the Bible together regularly. He was constantly asking how he could help others and serve in the church. I told her that God's mercy was melting him. And then I asked the judge uh, this question. I asked, what is your definition of justice? She asked me to clarify the question, which is fair. It's a weird question. So I asked it again. What is your definition of justice? Is justice removal, taking a bad apple out of society for the protection and good of the bunch? If so, he's not dangerous, and he's on the straight and narrow now. So is justice removal, or is justice justice retributive, punishment for wrong done? You did the crime, you do the time. If so, that is fair. He did the crime, he earned the punishment, you should sentence him. But, or... Is justice restorative? Is justice aimed at rehabilitation and restoration where possible? If that's the case, this man knows what he did. He is pleading guilty, but the truth is he is already changing. And he's ready to continue on that path. And I'm afraid that putting him behind bars might only hurt his rehabilitation, not help him. But ultimately, the choice is yours. Uh, You decide, and whatever you decide is just. It's, It's fair. Uh, thankfully, the judge opted to let him out on a really strict probation, like one strike, you're out, you know, kind of thing. 
and uh, committed him to 100 hours of community service. Which, this was kind of cool, to be served specifically at our congregation. That was her, one of her requirements of the community service. Uh, what's even cooler, though, is um, while God invites us to come as we are, he never leaves us there. Like, if we will follow Jesus, he always brings us further up and further in. And uh, so it brings me a lot of joy to tell you that even though um, this man's growth in Christ had some dark moments along the way, uh, he's now married with four amazing kids. He's a homeowner. He has rental properties, contributing member of society, and he was recently nominated to be an elder at his church. Um, and he called me this week, and it was obvious that God is still melting his heart 10 plus years later. It is a beautiful thing. Uh, and where we left off in Nehemiah 8, we're on this feels like nonstop train through Nehemiah 8, where we left off last week, the light of God's word confronted the darkness inside the people's hearts. And in the face of God's holiness, what we were just singing about, they saw their sin for what it was. They were guilty and without excuse, and realizing that caused them to mourn and weep. And now they're awaiting God's verdict. How would God punish them for their disobedience and unfaithfulness? What is God's definition of justice? The people heard and understood the word rightly, right? We said that. And then they responded to the word with mourning and weeping. And yet, while repentance is a proper reaction to the word of God, I told you last week, the text kind of lets us know that their response was a little off. It was a miss. And here's why. The people understood and responded to their sin. But they failed to understand and respond to God's mercy. They understood responding to their sin but they failed to understand and respond to God's mercy. Thankfully, God didn't leave them where they were to wallow in defeat. He used his ministers to remind the people of the good news of God and how that good news factors into our lives and how we can live into it. If you have your Bible with you, open up with me to Nehemiah 8. Uh, this is four parts from now, five. I'm just kidding. We're going to close this thing out today with verses 9 through 12. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verses 9 through 12, hear the word of the Lord. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. May we hear it, understand it, and respond to it uh, to and for God's glory and for our joy. Okay. If you were reading this passage on your own, I think it would probably make sense to you that the people saw their sin and their mourning and weeping because of it. That would probably make sense. Uh, but if you were reading it on your own, what might throw you off is why the leaders tell the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. That comment almost feels like weird to some of us. Like it doesn't really belong to this scene. Like you took an ending and like, I'm missing a detail, right? Like what's happening? And I have a guess as to why that might sound weird to some of us. I suspect that some of us, but not all of us, uh, some of us, myself included, rightly read the scriptures to encounter God. And when we do, some of us, we, we rightly see God's holiness and our sin. And then we rightly confess our sin. And then we, we rightly repent. But then 
we wrongly uh, walk away with worm theology. Worm theology. You ever heard that phrase before? Uh, we even sing about it, right? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Do you remember the rest of that line? Would he devote the sacred head for such a worm as I? Uh, we even sing about it. Uh, worm theology. And with worm theology, we, worm theology thinks that a low view of ourselves makes God look bigger. A low view of ourselves makes God look better. A low view of ourselves proves that we really understand the situation for what it is. A low view of ourselves makes God more likely to show us mercy and compassion. If we really hate ourselves, he'll love us more. Uh, and with worm theology, we hear the word and our understanding of the word when we have worm theology, it's uh, feeling perpetually small and, and dirty and weak and defeated and thankful for even a shack in the corner of God's kingdom. Oof, I don't even deserve that. And that's our understanding, and if that's our understanding, our response to that understanding is us constantly trying to prove to ourselves and to God that we're really sorry. Us constantly trying to prove to God and to ourselves that we're worthy of the honor of a shack even in the corner of the kingdom, even though we know we'll never measure up. We're going to try to prove that we're worthy of that. Um, at least that's how I used to see things. I'll tell you that. I told you last week that my legalistic heart would be content with the story to end with people weeping and mourning over their unfaithfulness to God. Like, I would be content with that ending. And I know that's weird, but my legalistic heart kind of likes the ending of the, the story of the tortoise and the hare. Right? The tortoise wins. Good for him. He deserves it. He, he went, but the hare, he loses, and he's wallowing in regret with a big old loss. Like, that feels right to me in my legalism. Uh, maybe that's morbid, but it's the truth. And maybe you feel the same way. But I want to explain to you why my legalistic heart likes those kind of endings. End it with the people mourning. End it with the rabbit losing. Yeah. Uh, A.W. Tozer used to say, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God, what we imagine him to be like, the tone of his voice when he speaks in the scriptures, how he'll respond to us in our wins and losses, what comes into our mind when we think about God, uh, that's the most important thing about us. That's what Tozer used to say. And for years, even as a pastor, I pictured God as a strict principal with a thick book of rules who actually kind of liked punishing students when they broke the rules. That's, that's what I imagined. Uh, I mean, sure, he kept a bowl of candy on his desk and had a label called Grace. I, I get that. But in my mind, he mostly stood in the hallways of earth, upright with his arms crossed, glaring at the students as they walked by in shame with their heads hung low, and he was content with that so long as they followed his rules. That, that's what I imagine God to be like, and I'm convinced that the people here in Nehemiah 8 had a similar picture of God in their mind too. They saw their sin. They should have. They felt guilty. They were. They felt unworthy of God's kindness and his forgiveness. They were. Um, so it makes sense to me why they would respond with mourning and weeping, right? It's fitting. Uh, but thankfully, the leaders were also hearing and understanding the word of God, and they knew enough to tell the people that their response was amiss. And I do want to explain that in a few minutes, but I want to explain something else first. Do I have a... I, th I think I'm good. All right, listen, I realize I'm ADD. I am. I, I know it, and I can be hard to keep up with. Um... I tend to chase rabbits, and I tend to overcomplicate things. My brother called me a few weeks ago after listening to one of my sermons, and he basically said, 
too much, man. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid was his words. And I, here's the thing, I really want to. I do. I write that over my notes every week as I'm writing sermons. Keep it simple, stupid. I want to, but sometimes I just can't help it. And uh, this is probably one of those times. I know this sermon is about responding to the word, and it is. But if we're going to respond to the word rightly, I think we need to hear and understand this first. Otherwise, if we don't, our responses to God's word will always be a weepy, repentant, worm theology, hocus pocus. So if we're really going to understand what happens in verses 9 through 12, I have to ask you a question first. Are you guys ready for it? Here's my question. Why did God create the world? (laughs) I'm not joking. Why did God create this world? What was his purpose and intention in starting this project and carrying it out that we call humanity? Why? It's a big question. You don't have to answer. I'll just give you Jonathan Edwards' answer. The end for which God created the world is for his glory and the praise of his own name. So why did God create the world and everything in it? For his glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For his glory. Jesus says exactly that in John 12. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why do we obey God? For his glory, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Everything, everything God does and everything we do is for his glory and for the praise of his name. And that's the truth. But if we were honest, which we rarely are in church, myself included, hearing that probably brushes up against our flesh a little bit. It does mine. I'll I'll confess that. It makes God sound like an egomaniac, and it makes us sound like little props just to stroke his ego. But that's why understanding is immensely important here. And I've shared this quote with you before, but that's okay, because I quoted it for years myself before I really understood it. And I promise you this. If you can hear this and really understand it, I promise you it will change everything. Our response to the word included... um, So here's the quote. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. John Piper, which is really a repackaging of Jonathan Edwards, which is really a repackaging of St. Augustine. But Piper says it punchily, and we like it. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. What does that mean? Well, for most of my life, I knew God's word well. My dad ensured that. He drilled it into us. I knew what God did. I knew what God commanded. I knew his purpose and everything, his glory and the praise of his name. And in light of that understanding, every decision, every temptation felt like two paths were set before me, a fork in the road, and I had to choose between them. Uh, Path one was God's glory. Path two that went in the other direction, uh, it was my satisfaction, my joy. So do I tell the truth? Or do I just stay silent? Because that'd be a lot easier. Do I purchase that belt? Or do I steal that belt? Do I stay pure? Or do I give in to my urges? Do you see what I mean? One road would give God glory. The other road kind of satisfies me and serves me in what I want. And there is truth to that. Obedience is hard. Jesus calls it death to self. To give God glory, I have to deny myself. Right? 
If that's true, you can understand why I associated holiness with gloom. God's glory equals my sadness. And uh, that's why God's glory and my joy constantly felt like two diverging paths. Choose one or the other. You can give God glory or you can be satisfied. But I want to tell you this morning that the two are not mutually exclusive. That is a false dichotomy. It was drawn up from Satan in the Garden of Eden. It worked there, still working, so he's still sticking to it. Did God really say? You want that. Paints God as withholding, creates doubt and trust in the relationship, and promises better endings at the end of that tunnel. Uh, he's been doing it ever since. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Piper is speaking directly to that. Yes, all things exist to glorify God, but not at the expense of our joy. God is most glorified through our joy. And if that's true, which it is, then there's no conflict between God's greatest glory and our greatest joy. They're actually one in the same. Uh, what I'm telling you is this. God is not after our obedience. Not really. He's after our joy. Listen, I know how heretical that sounds. I do. It sounds like I'm saying, God doesn't care what we do. He just wants us to be happy, so do whatever you feel like. That's what it sounds like I'm saying. I'm not saying that, okay? The small g God of this world says that. Uh, the gospel of Satan says, God doesn't care what you do. He just wants you to be happy. Go at it. Whatever it is, chase your fancies. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is very nuanced. You've got to stick with me and listen closely. God's not ultimately after our obedience. Not really. What he's ultimately after is actually our joy. And here's the secret sauce. Here's what I missed for years and years, and I'm giving you the short because I learned this the hard way. This is the secret sauce. This is what makes sense of this sentence. The road of obedience is where our deepest joy is found. It's not obedience that he's after. Not really. That obedience isn't God's end goal for us. He's not going, yeah, follow my rules, good. That's not what he's ultimately after. What he's ultimately after is our joy. And the reason he gives us commands, the reason he wants us to follow them is because he knows what we fail to know constantly. He knows that obedience is the only way that we can truly ever experience joy. And only then when we find our joy in God on the road of obedience, that's when he receives the most glory from our lives. So let me give you a before and after. Before, when I was tempted by sin and felt like I had to sacrifice my joy to give God glory, what I was assuming was that my sin would give me more pleasure and more satisfaction than God ever could or that God ever would. That's what I was feeling in those moments. Do I give God glory or do I satisfy myself? In that moment, I'm assuming that to give God glory Oof, gloom. To please myself, there's more joy at the end of that road than there ever will be over there. Like, in the end, I was believing the lie that God didn't really care about my joy because he was concerned about his glory. Uh, but now, in those hard moments of deep temptation, I promise you this will tie back into Nehemiah 8. Uh, in those hard moments of temptation, when my flesh and everything in me is pulling me to just give in, <laughs> with the Holy Spirit's help, I can stand firm in faith and just say, no. The road of obedience is where my deepest and real joy is found. That road 
only leads to despair and death. And when we can understand that, everything we do can be a right response to God's work. Everything we do, whether we eat or drink, I love that Paul highlights these ordinary, almost mundane things, even these normal things, whatever we do can be done to and for the glory of God and our joy. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But what about our sin? The road to obedience is where our deepest and greatest joy is found. But what happens when we wander from that road? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, (laughs) When we wander off the road of obedience, because we doubt that truth, because we think we know better, because we know a shortcut to joy, and then instead of finding joy, we get lost in the woods. We're starving to death. We start to lose hope. What happens then? How does God respond to us when we fail to respond to him? That's what I'm asking you. Uh, Well, it's usually then. Right when we lose hope of saving ourselves, when we admit that we are lost and we have no idea where we are, where we're going, how to get back, it's usually in that moment that we hear God's gentle whisper blasting through the thick forest. Uh, Truth is, he was calling to us the whole time, right? It's just we convinced ourselves that that faint whisper, and it's probably just the wind. It's nothing. Uh, But in that moment of deep desperation, we hear him clearly. And we hear the very voice of Christ Jesus calling us to come home. We hear him saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when we come to him, when we step just one foot in that direction, I love this. He runs to greet us. He comforts us. He clothes us. He makes us warm. He puts a ring on our finger, not just claiming us as his property, but making him ours, a mutual belonging. And then he brings us home to a celebration, and he slaughters a fattened calf, and there's feasting and joy in his house. What I'm telling you is that sin brings guilt and shame, but repentance brings confidence with which we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace and find help and mercy in time of need. Sin brings division, bondage, despair, and death. Repentance brings reconciliation, freedom, and eternal joy. That's the fruit of repentance. But here's the irony. Maybe you're different, and that's fine. I I praise God if you are. Oftentimes, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin, and we finally see it for what it really is, The irony is that we often fall into despair and sin, uh, despair and shame over our sin. We feel defeated, right? We we sinned boldly and confidently, but then when we see our sin, we repent so sheepishly and all the rest, and that's backwards. Uh, Thankfully, John Chrysostom said this 1,600 years ago, and once I read it, I never forgot it. Be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. That's why the people's response was amiss. They failed to understand and grasp that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who did not need to repent. More rejoicing. In Nehemiah 8, the people understood the concept of sin, but they misunderstood the concept of grace. They heard and understood the word. They saw their sin for what it is, and they responded. But in their response, their wires got crossed. A little bit, and uh, mine do too sometimes. 
Yes, God wants his people to repent, but not so that they'll grovel and grieve and die in sorrow. He wants them to repent so that they can receive forgiveness and comfort and rest and joy and then live into that. Thankfully, this passage, this beautiful passage, shows us that repentance is meant to pave the way for joy. Our response to the word is joy. And if you can get that, you're ready to understand Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. Uh, So this is verse 9. What's happening in verse 9? It's really easy to explain. The leaders are telling the people, stop mourning, stop weeping. Why? Because this day is holy to the Lord your God. That's what's happening. (laughs) But why are they committing the people to stop mourning and weeping? And what makes that day holy? That's a little harder to explain. To explain that, you need to go back to verse 2. Because we read something over something really quickly. We glossed over it. It seems unimportant. But verse 2 says, this event took place on the first day of the seventh month. And we're not going to get into the fact that the Jews had two calendars. And we're not going to get into all seven feasts God commanded Israel to do in Leviticus 23, except for one, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. Can anyone guess when the Feast of Trumpets was supposed to begin? On the first day of the seventh month. You got it. Bible scholars, I love this church. Uh, The Feast of Trumpets, you may know it by another name, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, was the beginning It marked the beginning of the Jewish civil calendar, right? And on that day, they would announce a new year to live under the mercy of God, and they would announce that with these blasts from trumpets. And the joyful sounds from these trumpets that when they would ring out was meant to wake the people up from their daily activities, from their normal grinds and normal concerns, and tell them this day is special. This day is different from the rest of them. And the Feast of Trumpets would begin what they called the Days of Awe. Awesome. Wasn't meant just to be solemn, but on the days of all, they were supposed to really contemplate their standing before God. Where do I stand with God? And how would they do that? Well, they would start with confessing their sins. Check. The people are doing that really well. When we left them, they're just, <laughs> oh gosh. And the wages of sin is death. And they were guilty. And these people are mourning because they realize what they deserve death. They heard God's commands, they broke them, and they know what they deserve. They deserve to die. But during this holiday, God also commanded them to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, right? God's gracious provision, his merciful instructions for his people to make a sacrifice, to sacrifice a life, to put something else in their place. Let something else die so that you can live. And that's the hangup. The people fail to understand if their repentance is true, they are truly forgiven. Confession of sin was only a part of this holy day. But the real point, the final destination of this whole process, where it was all going, was, as the name of the holiday implies, a feast, a celebration. That's where this train is going, right? And that's what the people were missing. So in verse 9, the leaders tell the people, hey, y'all, you're on the right track. Uh, You're on the right path, but don't stop there. Finish the song. Praise God. You see your sin for what it is. You understand what you've been forgiven of. But don't forget what you've been forgiven to. You've been forgiven to what? Freedom, feasting, celebration, joy, life abundantly. So stop your mourning and weeping and let's rejoice and live into God's grace. My dearest brothers and sisters, the world 
the flesh, and the devil may paint the Christian life as miserable, lacking, and morose. I believed that lie for years, and you may believe it right now. But in verses 10 through 12, we get to see what a true, right, beautiful response to the Word of God actually looks like. Uh, Look at verses 10 through 12. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send your portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Y'all, I love these verses so much. I really do. While my legalistic heart would have been content for the people to stay licking their wounds and wallowing in their grief that feels right to me uh, through this word, God melts my heart with grace. Israel had just realized and confessed all the hundreds and thousands of ways they had violated God's law and sinned against him and smacked him in the face in light of his patience and his kindness. And what does God command them to do? He commands them to celebrate. He commands them to celebrate, to go home and prepare a feast, not beans and rice, not a meal for sustenance. He tells them uh, to make special occasion, holiday food, right? Like, fatty foods and sweet foods and good wine. And God truly turns mourning into dancing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And this boulder of mercy that God just tosses into the hearts of the people, it's meant to cause ripple effects and come out. That's that's what's supposed to happen. The people deserve punishment, but God freely gives them grace and mercy and joy. And those who hear and understand God's grace, they respond in grace and mercy and generosity too. It ripples out of them, which is why the leaders tell the people, as they prepare this feast to celebrate God's forgiveness and God's kindness, they should mirror that by freely and joyfully sharing what they have with anyone who has not, whether they deserve it or not. Because God's grace, there's no room for the language of deserving when it comes to grace. They didn't deserve forgiveness. God gives it to them freely. Share what you have freely. Doesn't matter if they deserve it. You don't deserve grace. That's how it goes. And then in verse 10, it's subtle, but the leaders, they uh, make worm theology off limits. They do. They basically say this. Yeah, you might still feel regret and remorse. There will likely be moments where you remember your unfaithfulness and you feel shame about it. Uh, But rather allowing that guilt and shame to defeat you, embrace those moments. Don't dilute it. Don't explain it away. Well, really? And call your sin exactly what it is. Do that. But <clears throat> when you do, don't forget to call God's grace exactly what it is too. And God's grace is a free gift that conquers all our sin. God's grace separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And while we might have been worms before, God's grace transforms us and makes us into something new. No longer worms. We're sons and daughters of the king of kings and precious in his sight. God's grace does that. Uh, So do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love that verse. And then in verse 12, we see that the people heard the word rightly. They understood the word rightly and then they respond to the word rightly. And what does a right response to the word look like? They feasted. They drank. They celebrated, they shared what they had, they rejoiced deeply in their joy in God and deeply in the joy found in the good gifts he gives us. How do we know this? Why did they do this? I love the end of it. Verse 12, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. 
That's what it looks like to rightly understand the word of God. Freedom, reconciliation, joy, generosity, lightness. Ooh, y'all, that'll preach just through someone else, I'm sure. I hope you can see why there was three legs to this stool. Uh, hearing, understanding, and responding. And they're, they're all tied together. They all depend on one another. Hearing is understanding. If you don't understand, you didn't hear. And understanding is responding. If you're not responding, you didn't understand. They're all tied together. It's symbiotic. They all go in a circle. And uh, I don't think this needs to be said. We say this a lot here, but just in case it does, we don't respond to God, to his word, to earn anything. We can't. We don't respond to prove ourselves worthy. We never will be. Uh, and we don't respond to show that we're better than anyone else. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. What was Luther's line? Uh, what's the difference between Christians and non-believers? Uh, he says this, we're all poor beggars. The only difference is Christians know where to get free bread. Come. He gives it for free. Come and eat to all, to any. Come. I know better than you. I'm going to eat here. <laughs> Come with me. That's the difference. Uh, we don't respond for any of those reasons. We respond to God's word for God's glory and for our joy. That's why we respond to the word. And this scene from Nehemiah 8 is a beautiful moment in Israel's history. It is. It's just one of the watershed moments. And these few verses, a sinful, divided people who would look to fill themselves, to find purpose, to find meaning, to fix their problems through unity, through gigantic religious institutions, through social transformation, through political reform, through a powerful nation state and defenses and all the rest, they realized they were starving to death. Those things would never fix them. Those things would never satisfy them. They realized that in these few verses. And they heard and understood and responded to the word of God. And when they did, it transformed them into you, a united, listening, worshiping, freely, forgiving, understanding, confessing, humble, obedient, and rejoicing people. And I stink and love it. The word of God did that in them. And you would hope that this revival would be a turning point in Israel's story. But I told you at the beginning of this mini-series, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, this was a genuine spiritual mountaintop moment. I'm not trying to take away from that at all. I believe what is happening is genuine. I do. Um, but since moving here, I've learned that from the top of the mountain, things down there seem smaller. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, from the top of the mountain, um, the buildings, the people, our problems, even ourselves, everything seems smaller way down there. Uh, we get clarity and a unique perspective from the top of the mountain, but we can't stay there. And eventually we have to come down. And as we start to descend into the valley, while things seem smaller from up there, as we start to go down, uh, they become actual size again, right? <laughs> and when we do, we're quickly immersed into what C.S. Lewis called real life. When we come back down, we're back into real life and we lose that perspective that we had up there. And that's what happened to Israel too. Um, this feeling that they experienced in Nehemiah, this response, this genuine, true response, this feeling, it faded. They reverted back to their old diet. And the book closes with uh, the word of God neglected, the people being unfaithful. Nehemiah beating the people up, grabbing them from the beards, yelling at them to obey God's word. And then the book closes. And the truth is, a day is coming, and it may now already be, when we feel overwhelmed by our problems and our circumstances. A day is coming, and it may already be when we feel defeated by our sin, when we wander from the road of obedience where our deepest joy is found, and our consciences grow numb to the sin in our lives, and God's whisper might be the wind, and we find ourselves lost in the swamp of despair all over again, starving to death. 
uh, and the point of this whole mini-series is to remind us that even there, especially there, uh, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we can't survive a lifetime on one meal. We can't endure to the end with one mountaintop experience, which is why we need to faithfully and consistently labor to hear, understand, and respond to the word of God. Because, last quote, and we'll pray. Because a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Charles Spurgeon. Let's pray.